George talked about Star Wars, and he didn't have a title yet, but the concept for a film that was going to be a big galactic war. Then when he started to talk to Fox, uh, it seemed to him a good idea to have some illustrations to show the, the scope of the visuals that he'd planned, which I think in George's mind was a big part of the movie. And I told him that I'd love to do it. He and Gary came over one day with the script. I started on it the same day. I, I really got into it right away, working on those original uh, paintings that were really done to sell the film. And I was very fortunate to work with George Lucas in designing the original, um, you know, episodes one, two, and three, because he was the one who kind of set up the template for future art departments. And he felt that it was very important to have designers like myself start working the minute he's starting to write. And he liked that because it was a very collaborative medium where I could inspire him by the artwork that I was creating. Likewise, I would be inspired by him by the words that he was writing. And so working back and forth, when I would create an image, it might spark an idea for him. He would throw something back for me was really wonderful and he insisted that you know the art departments for Star Wars for example uh, the art directors and the artists always start on day one when he's you know writing and that's very unusual and the only parallel that I can find is when he was designing the original trilogy with Ralph McQuarrie and Joe Johnston. I never really thought it would be a film while I was working on those original paintings. I, it seemed so vast a project to me. I think it's very important to always keep the audience engaged so that they never question what they're seeing. They just fall into it, they believe what they're seeing. There's a level of realism in there. And so my approach right now to design, even if I'm asked to create something really fantastic, is I'll try to put sort of a, uh, a sensible reality to it because I know that at the end of the day, I'm one of the biggest fans. And if I don't believe that design, it's not gonna work. So I wanna create a design that I can believe in. Finally, finally talking about the art of The Mandalorian Season 2, the book by the one and only Phil Shostak. It's, it's about time we start talking about this incredible book. We just kept meaning to do an episode on this book, and things just kept happening, and we finally yeah, have gotten the time to sit and talk about it. And it's kind of perfect timing because... We just found out about the Mandalorian panel at Celebration. 
So if our Mando fever wasn't already coming back from rereading this book, there's now another reason for Mando fever to start bubbling up again, mixing with Kenobi fever and some weird bubbly cocktail of excitement. It's like we're still hung over from the book of Boba Fett. We know Kenobi is coming like a freight train down the tracks, just going to run us over in just about a matter of weeks. And now, yeah, today, literally, the Mando, looking back at Mando panel for Celebration on Saturday morning was announced. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, now I got Mando fever again. Here we go. I'm listening to Ludwig in the car, getting all pumped up, thinking about Mando season three now. So, yeah. Perfect timing. We can finally talk about the art of Mandalorian season two. We've had the book for a while. You know, and that's the other thing, too. I'm glad we waited because I was happy to just let everything in this book and all the incredible art in this book just really soak in for about a month or so, however long we've all had it. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in here, like going through and trying to highlight some of my favorites. And then I like... Went back and looked because I was putting little post-its in. Every, oh, this page is good. Oh, this page is nice. It's like there's a whole other book in my book of all the little post-its I put in there because there's so many pages with cool stuff on it. I should have just highlighted every page. <laughs> every page is my favorite. Every illustration in the book is my all-time favorite illustration. It's another incredible making of book behind the scenes book however you want to go into this from phil showstack as we've known to to expect from him it's fascinating looking at this book and comparing it to the art of season one mandalorian and i think that just comes from there's a bit more of a the confidence in the design where so much of the beginning of art of season one was well What is this show going to be? Who is the Mandalorian? What exactly does this look like? How far do we go from the look of Boba Fett, for example? Who is Baby Yoda? What does this look like? How cute is too cute? Where this book, where I was going through it again, getting ready for this episode, it reminded me of our Art of the Art of Last Jedi book we did, where there was... In that book, The Last Jedi versus like The Force Awakens, for example, where Force Awakens was more that kind of thing of trying to reach for what this is and what this new era of Star Wars, what the, the visual landscape of that is, where we're Last Jedi, it's like we already know, we're honing in on stuff. I, I got that same kind of feeling looking at The Art of Mando Season 2. I don't know, what, how would you compare this book season two to the season one book. Yeah, that sounds like a good description where it is. There's much more confidence in this one and and less kind of blue sky design and more just focused design on what the episodes are because they kind of know where they're going. And that doesn't mean they kind of aren't exploring things like things like, you know, some of the great dragon stuff and some of the characters, they kind of are still reaching for different ideas. But yeah, I think that's a good way to put it that they're just... Like Last Jedi, it's kind of the template was set, and now they're just off off to the races, off to the Fathier races. And something cool in the intro in this book that I think definitely helped that confidence in a lot of the design work was they're talking about bringing in Richard Bluff and his crew 
and incorporating the stagecraft stuff into the process so much more. Yeah, because it's neat how, I mean, this, you know, was the case with season one, but even more so with season two of just how with the volume, the the traditional VFX production is kind of flipped and they have to do so much more ahead of time as far as getting the storyboards up and writing real, not real for everything so they can figure out what's volume and what's not volume and what are props that need to be designed that are going to be built for real? What are things that are going to be built virtually just in the computer? And what are things that need to exist in both that there's a different level of pre-planning than there is in a traditional VFX movie. And that's intertwined with the concept team and even writing and uh, the story part. What I like that they're talking about in the, the introduction there that bringing in the stagecraft stage, the volume stage of the design early into the whole process makes it more fluid, almost like animation. Everything's all kind of happening at once, it seems like, more with Mando Season 2 and probably everything going forward. Yeah, and part of the pre-production process is storyboards. And interesting information here is that head of storyboards, Dave Lowry, has worked with Jon Favreau on pretty much all of his movies since 2008, uh, from Iron Man, Lion King. And Dave Lowry has some... ILM history because his first professional gig was storyboarding Willow for Ron Howard, who obviously is the father of Bryce Dallas Howard. So it's all behind the scenes family and found family of Star Wars people, just like on the screen. It all goes back to Willow. Everything, literally everything goes back to Willow and everything's going to go back to Willow again whenever that show finally comes out. They've been playing the long game. It's all going to make sense when Willow comes out. I'm going to make a t-shirt. Wear it at Celebration. Don't worry. It's all going to make sense when Willow, when Willow comes out. Everything. You are great. So, another great thing with the art of The Mandalorian Season 2 is... You know, just like all the traditions of Star Wars stuff, the art of book, we talk about it every time we do an art of art of episode. It all goes back to 1979 and the art of Star Wars by Carol Teitelman. It's like we take for granted all the time how incredible that book is because you think of there was the making of Star Wars on TV, but it was that book that really kind of introduced just fans, really just like people that were just like, how did they make that movie? I've never seen anything like that in my life. And, oh, these people, Ralph McQuarrie and Joe Johnston and John Malo and John Barry, for fans, these people became just as important as... Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, and Carrie Fisher to this day. And it was, I I want to say it was that book that really kind of showed the importance of design in Star Wars and the, the work that those people did and talked about the cultural influences of the design of the Star Wars aesthetic 
going into, you know, designs and looks and styles that are still kind of the the undercurrent of everything going on Star Wars all the time in Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett, I'm sure, and all the stuff coming out, all the 10 million things we're going to learn about very soon. What Carol Teitelman started in that book and what Phil Shostak continues today of just showcasing the amazing artists that are just keeping this tradition alive. Well, the other fun thing always with the new Star Wars art book, too, is as much as you enjoy following the characters of the Skywalker saga or the Mandalorian saga through their different adventures, the behind the scenes team is kind of a familiar cast of characters that you can follow through the design with the, you know, Ralph McQuarrie and Joe Johnston in the original trilogy, but now starting with the prequel trilogy on until today, it's still Doug Chang still there. He's been doing this on and off for 16 years back in the crew are some of prequel favorites, Eric Tiemens, Ryan church, returning sequel trilogy favorites like Christian Alsman season one Mando returning favorites like Brian Mateus, Amy Beth Christensen from rebels and clone wars and Tony McVeigh back doing concept sculptures. It's like all our favorite characters have returned in a new film, but they're just behind the scenes making it happen. You can see it in the pages of this book. You can see it on screen when you're watching. It's the the mixture of the old and the new. And I you know, and Doug Chang in his awesome foreword to the book. He's talking about how Mando season two shows all they have learned over the years and how, you know, this new era of Star Wars, it's just this giant rolling ball of like a giant rolling snowball taking from Macquarie and Johnston and the people, yeah, like you were saying, that worked on the prequels and Clone Wars and Rebels and the people that were working on the sequels. And now everyone is just going forward in this awesome new direction with, with this new era. And I love Doug Chang too, talking about how, you know, how it all has to start with a good story. And then that informs the art and his four stages of design process that he's talking about the number one the philosophical foundation number two the concept design number three actual production and number four post and it's the design of making something like the mandalorian or a star wars tv show it it never stops like they talk about in here the the example of most pelgo freetown and that freetown could have been just like another Tatooine city of, you know, Mos Eisley or Mos Espa or something that we, that we've seen. And the idea of doing it in more of the style of like an, of just an old West street, like something off like the universal studios backlot, but put it in Tatooine. And it's something we're going to be talking about more and more in this episode as we talk about the art of Mandalorian season two. And it's something we talk about all the time when we're talking about that Star Wars aesthetic, where it's that George Lucas thing of giving you 
what you think you know or what you think you expect or what you think you're going to get, but doing it in a completely different way that you never thought of. Well, and I think Doug Chang wraps it up so nicely. There is a great quote in here that sounds like something that Yoda could have said, and he is kind of the Star Wars design Yoda at this point, is that it is the choices we make that determine talent. Which is an interesting way to put it because it's basically saying it's not necessarily you know, your technique that determines your your skill. It's knowing what to keep and what to throw away and that that's ultimately the most important skill and something that I think is applicable in things outside of art as well. And it's kind of something that happens in, in Star Wars stories of making the right choices is the is the important thing to do well and, and i think that goes right back to how you know he starts his whole thing saying of course it all starts with the story that i think those two things are hand in hand with the design and knowing what to leave in what to let go wanting to go all the way i mean that's something people talk about all the time with these star wars shows of oh well you know just a bunch of fan service and blah blah blah, blah you know and it's like well no no you know it it could be that <laughs> you know like <laughs> less is more and keeping it focused on characters and story and i think the same goes with the art and yeah knowing restraint with something as awesome as incredible star wars is I, honestly, I don't know how these people do it. We're, I don't think we're good at that. <laughs> I don't know if people out there listening can tell. We get a little crazy here on this show. Maybe we don't make the best choices, though. <laughs> but, that, yeah, that goes in, like, with the most Pelgo thing. Freetown. Exactly, as well, where it's like there's different ways you could bring back another city on Tatooine. And that was one choice. And once they made the choice to have another city on Tatooine, choosing to bring it back in a way you don't expect by leaning more into traditional Western design is an example of that is, is why they're the best at what they're doing. Because even like we said with characters, they're bringing back characters that logically make sense, but they might be doing it in a way that isn't what you expected to keep it interesting. And it's those choices that make it better than just fan service for the sake of fan service. During one of our art meetings, I was presenting to George uh, a bunch of designs. He came in the room and very quickly looked at the whole board and right away identified the you know two or three that he really liked not the one that i liked and i finally had the courage to say okay well why did you pick those instead of this and he said well doug you know the designs have to live by themselves when you see them on the screen you're not going to be there to explain what it is the audience has to connect with it right away you have to know its personality you have to know its function you have to know where the pilot sits which direction it's going all those things in less than three seconds and if you can do that in a design without any explanation, the design will be that much more powerful. Okay, let's get into it. Let's go through the book. We're going to go episode by 
episode. We're going to talk about some of the chunky bits, the behind the scenes chunky bits, the art that comes up, and at the end of talking about each episode and the art, we're going to pick our favorite pieces of Mando Season 2 art from each one. Let's start with the Marshall, the behind-the-scenes chunky bit, I think, that is going on with the Marshall that I I still cannot wrap my head around this is the crazy schedule that they're talking about with the production of especially like the Marshall and Mando season two in general that Favreau is writing Mando season two. They like Phil is talking about in there, like they just say like in quotes Christmas break. And I'm like, wait a minute, they're filming it. The day that Disney Plus goes live and we're all sitting at home losing our minds over this little little Yoda baby. And they're filming like the Marshall stuff. So when they say that he was writing it over Christmas break, like, so then that's Christmas holiday break 2018. Just like six months after Solo came out. Right? Is my math right? And Celebration Chicago was like another seven months after that when they first showed us footage and we all were like, oh, this this weird show about this bounty hunter. What does this even mean? How are they going to make a show out of this? But already they were like done with the scripts for season two, basically. I don't, I still, that blows my mind. Yeah, I think you're right because, I mean, the actor who plays the Weequay bartender when the Marshall aired was mentioning how he was on set while they, while the, when the show premiered, wasn't he like, weren't they filming this episode when the first episode had just come out or it was just before the second episode was coming out. Like the production schedule is just, is so insane when you think about that. We're just, you know, we had just seen baby Yoda and we're starting to grasp what the show was and they were already filming the, the next season that we wouldn't see for another year. It freaks me out. And it, it, it freaks me out thinking about all the secrets and all the things that are coming that we're just like, what is going on? <laughs> and there's so much stuff going on. They don't tell us, they don't tell us anything. And it's good that they don't. So, so that we can live our lives. <laughs> so we can get up in the morning and put clothes on. Cause otherwise just be laying in bed all day naked. <laughs> And it's not helping anybody. <laughs> it's not doing anyone any favors. The art of the Marshall, though, blows my mind. All the crate dragon stuff in here. When I look at all this crate dragon art, I I start doing a, a crate dragon call, and you just cycle through all the different variations of the crate dragon call. I just turn the page, and each one is a different crate dragon call. <laughs> Well, and before we get too much into Crate Dragon stuff, we can't forget some of the highlights of the book here. Like on page 21, the beautiful concept of Gore Koresh's comb over. Oh, my God. 
Like it wasn't a, you know, a mistake or just haphazardly happened that he had an incredible comb over. It was meticulously concepted. Brian Mateus saying they, they went full Tony Soprano with the crime boss and his, his crazy Star Wars comb over. Just, just incredible, incredible stuff. Yeah, because that was one of those moments where I, I had to stop and think. I never thought I would see a Cyclops with a comb over in anything in my life, especially not in the new live action Star Wars. And we got to give a shout out to Tony McVeigh and Christian Alsman for really just bringing home the shirtless Gamorians that now we have come to accept and love. They're part of our family, shirtless Gamorians. I, I have a, a candle whose flame will never go out for our two shirtless Gamorian friends from Book of Boba Fett who just fell right off the side of that mountain. It still hurts. It still really hurts. But two full pages of just shirtless Gamorian action. Yeah, and I love that there's, you know, there's some kind of rough-looking ones. There's like the super chiseled, handsome Gamorian. <laughs> All the great uh, maquettes that were sculpted. Yeah, just the fact that Gamorians are back and they're kind of sexy now. It's just <laughs> another thing I never would have imagined in a million years. So much great art in the Marshall. It's hard to really sum it all up. Well, and we are introduced to a new behind-the-scenes superstar, I think, here with Anton Grandert, who has a few uh, paintings of the arena with just, like, really beautiful lighting and and high-contrast kind of real painterly stuff. And he does some really cool kind of more 3D design stuff later on. But a lot of his stuff really jumped out at me. Well, before we pick our favorites, we got to talk about at the end all the pages of exploring the look for the return of Boba Fett. And I love that there's a lot of Boba Fett looks that are not related to Tuscan gear at all, which when I first got this book was really surprising to me because when I got the book, we were still like Book of Boba was still on TV. I was so involved in like the the Boba get the Boba getting dressed by the Tuscans and the ceremony of it all and just how awesome that was. And it's just like, wow, that was kind of just a, a chance thing that he was kind of decked out in Tuscan thing just from some Brian Mateus art. Yeah, it is kind of amazing how everything kind of worked out. And it's one of those things that maybe there were thoughts that we're just not knowing about of, of, of wanting to go into that direction or they just took what happened and kind of ran with it and it became part of the story. But however it came about, yeah, it all, it all worked out in the end. When I love Brian Mateus saying that for his ideas of Boba kind of in Tuscan gear, he was inspired by Lawrence of Arabia, which makes total sense. A lot of people were talking about that with the book of Boba Fett, especially the second episode, but also the sideshow Obi-Wan Kenobi mythos statue, where in that he's got like the Tuscan rifle and he's kind of got like this hodgepodge of gear from the desert of Tatooine. And I was just like, Oh yeah, of course. Right. Cause on page 64, he even has kind of a, an earlier sketch where he has some of the, the Kenobi color scheme. 
too. And it, it kind of looks like Desert Nomad Kenobi with Boba Fett's head. But yeah, just this one episode, it's kind of incredible how much art is in the book. That is just really, really awesome. Well, I know what I'm going to pick as my personal favorite from The Marshall. It is on page 58. It is another Brian Mateus, and it is called Mando Riding Bantha, version one. I love the colors of it. I love the simplicity of it. It's very Ralph McQuarrie in a way. It's Mando riding a bantha. I can never get tired of it. And just a Tuscan with his gaffy stick or her gaffy stick. We don't know. Just kind of standing off in the side. It's just a beautiful, beautiful piece. I love it. It's tough because I'm always drawn to the Eric Tiemens or, or Ryan Church concepts. The few that are sprinkled throughout each episode. I think it's just looking at the prequel art books so much that it just, they suck me in. And there's two great ones on page 40, but I think I'm going to go with page 39, the Tatooine Town Establishing shot by Ryan Church. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous. Yeah, with Mando and Grogu in the speeder just looking at Mos Pelgo. Freetown! And it's just so bright and hot and sunny looking. Right, well, let's move on to The Passenger Episode two, enter Peyton Reed. The behind the scenes stuff in here is kind of them just talking about bringing in Peyton Reed kind of from the Marvel family and Favreau's connection with him and how he was visiting the set and Favreau kind of talking about the art of the back and forth with the concept stuff, the artist working on the episode and the story and the classic you know, going all the way back to Macquarie, the the art informs the story, the story informs the art. It's a symbiotic relationship, if you will. There's a lot of great stuff going on in The Passenger. It's easy to forget about The Passenger and what a wild kind of episode it is. I mean, it gave us Frog Lady, it gave us Dr. Mandible, just ice spiders. I think they say in the the little behind the scenes thing, the little introduction in the beginning that it's it's a fairly like straightforward episode and maybe the most straightforward episode of season 2 of the Mandalorian, which in some ways it is. It is, but it's also kind of the wildest episode at the same time of season 2. Well, it's kind of the yeah, the charm of it is that the story is very straightforward and and they contrast that with everything around the story being completely outrageous. Well, and I like with the art and story symbiotic relationship that John Favreau kind of explains it like a game of telephone, but a game of telephone in a good way that as each person works on an idea, it changes, but it changes for the better. And the more people it goes through, the better and better it gets. Yeah. And on page 73, there's these Tony McVeigh, just naked frog lady sculpts. Just because you're flipping through the book, like, oh, this is so great. Look at all this frog lady. And, oh, there's Dr. Mandible. And, oh, look, there's a Yuzum. They were thinking about bringing back a Yuzum. I love Yuzum. And then, whoa, Tony McVeigh, naked frog lady. That's what happens. Well, and, you know, before we get ahead of ourselves, uh, on page 70, Christian Alsman is bringing the heat. And there is the Yuzum-inspired giant skinny leg bar alien version 257. I really wish they would have brought in the Yuzum, the Yuzum, depending on where you're from. Yeah, in, in West Michigan, we say Yuzum. 
Except for you say Yuzum, so I don't know. I'm the other side of the state, and I've, you know. Yeah, now that you've moved to eastern Michigan, you changed the pronunciation. I know, and I just think, too, about all the art in here of the ice spiders. Just so, so, so cool. I mean, we all know they came from the Macquarie concepts on Dagobah, where they were supposed to just be, like, messing around Dagobah, being weird and spooky, but... Again, it's an episode that I don't think people talk about enough or give enough credit for just how fun and bizarre it is. And you're reminded of that looking at the this incredible art in here. Well, and this episode's great too because because again because it's so simple and kind of really just takes place in one location, there's a very strong kind of color scheme to it. And the concepts really kind of play with that of everything, just the very cold, cool colors. I don't know, though, Gabe, if you got to pick one favorite piece of art from The Passenger, where where would you go? Again, there are so many good ones, but I think I'm going with the very first piece on page 68, The Razor Crest Chase by Ryan Church. It's just an action-packed shot. It's Razor Crests. It's X-Wings. I don't know. You got to pick some spaceships every once in a while. And yeah, this one just jumps, jumps right out of the page. It's hard because I want to pick the Brian Mateus, just frog lady portrait on page 73, for example. But I think I'm going to mix it up a little bit and I'm going to follow your lead with the, you got to go with some spaceship love. I'm going to give some love to the new blood Anton Grandert on page 75 with razor crest chase version 212 which is the razor crest just swooping down into those ice caverns and the x-wing following it i don't know it's just so 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 cool and i love how the ships are smaller compared to all the ice and the side of the mountain and i I know i always just love that stuff carson can you switch over to channel two Aircraft in the proximity of New Republic Correctional Transport Boston 5. You got a runner. I'm on it. Let's move on to one of our favorite things ever created in all time ever. The heiress. Bryce Dallas Howard is back. There's a lot of talk in the opening of the art and science of bringing a character that previously only existed in animation, Bo-Katan, into live action. Just like the episode itself, The Heiress, there's a lot going on in the art of The Heiress. Well, I thought it was interesting, too, in the in the kind of behind-the-scenes of two of this, in a way, being um, another inspired by the, the train robbery idea, that almost being maybe the the very first prototype of here, which they kind of elaborated on in Book of Boba with the full-on real train robbery, that some of that kind of was experimented with in this episode, just in a much more sci-fi and less literal train way. Well, what's cool, too, with like flipping through the art of the heiress is it's just like the passenger. There's just such a clear color palette to this episode which for some reason like when i'm i don't know when i'm watching these episodes on like tv i think i'm like so busy like just thinking about all the craziness of course and like the 
we're all right, fix your ship. You know, like Mon Calamari's and sweaters and chowder hoses and stuff. <laughs> I feel like sometimes like the overarching like color palettes and stuff like that just kind of just go right over my head. And that's kind of the beautiful thing with these art books is appreciating things like that. Well, the other thing with this episode too, which kind of ties back to the, you know, talent is making good choices. Something that's so simple, but so perfect was just making the decision that of the, this planet that's populated by the traditional star Wars water peoples is going to be based on a new England whaling town and just how that carried over into the architecture and just the idea of us getting Mon Calamari's wearing sweaters and Corrin's wearing raincoats and things like it's almost like this episode designed itself. Like once they made that connection and everything just kind of flowed from that. And it, yeah, it just ends up being such a perfect, goofy, Star Warsy twist on the real world. I don't know. I just, I love this episode so much. And it's, again, it's really hard to pick a favorite in this, but I have got to go with, I think it's page 89. They're next to each other. So I'm going to lump them in together. It's just a personal preference. It's Brian Mateus. It's the Mon Calamari fisherman with an ax and a fish. And it's a Quarren squid head with a peg leg. I don't know if there actually was a corn with a peg leg in the episode on screen, but I want to believe that there was a peg leg pirate corn. Yeah, I'm just going to have to go with, uh, on 102, I'm just going to go with the uh, Brian Mateus's uh, Bo-Katan helmet off version 3. Like in the first book, just his like full body costume paintings of the characters they're just so cool. And it's like, this is another one where it's like, I would want life-size posters of all those armor variations of Mando from season one. And I would want this Bo-Katan to go in my life-size Mando concept art gallery room. I would want this one hanging up there with the rest of them. It's awesome. I love that. That I was going to pick that one. For some reason that reminds me of like the stretching portrait room in the haunted mansion or something. It's <laughs> like, just this long portrait that I just would just go on forever of Bo-Katan. Well, you know, and one last thing before we move on, I think is worth mentioning, similar to the craziness with production of the Marshall, they mentioned in here that Bryce Dallas Howard started filming this three days before her first season one episode aired. So the world hadn't even seen Sanctuary yet, and she was already starting on one of the best 30 minutes of Star Wars ever put on film or digital video, I guess, if I want to be, be correct. Well, let's move on to the siege. We're back to the Dave Navarro planet. Carl Weathers is directing this one. I like in the intro, they're talking about how the Imperial base going on in this episode, all that action is like a little callback to the Imperial stuff on Edu in Rogue One, which I did not put that together at all. But once you read it and you like stop and think about it, you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it really is. But there's so much cool stuff going on in the Siege. The Siege is another one that like you think of Mandalorian season two and you think of like Bo-Katan and then you think of Luke coming in at the end and you think of Ahsoka. But the siege is one you just like don't think about as much, but it's got the school, 
It's got a spooky clone tank. It's got all the stuff inside the Imperial base. There's just a lot of cool Star Wars-ness going on in the siege. Well, and it's got the the squirrel rat thing at the beginning, too, which I'm (laughs) glad to see there's some concepts of. And one of the concepts is breathing fire. I think that was one of the concept things that was in the end of the episode, too. It was like, what? Well, and and that's on page 112. And on page 113, there's a wonderful quote uh, from Brian Mateus uh, about the uh, one of the Aqualish concepts. And he's talking about, you know, how the original trilogy did such a good job of having a bit of that old school, almost Ray Harryhausen vibe by getting existing animals in there. And they're all masks. It looks like a Halloween party, but there's iconography there. It's almost on that line of goofy, but it's memorable. That balance between cool and goofy is incredibly hard for me to find sometimes. And we will keep saying it to the end of time that, yeah, that is, as far as we're concerned, the secret of Star Wars is that balance between cool and goofy. It's, it's, still a stupid it's such a couple. fine line between stupid and, and clever. Yeah, it's just clever. a little yeah. <laughs> The words of wisdom, the secret to life. I know what I would pick for my personal favorite piece of art from The Siege. It is page 133. It is by Ryan Church. Marauder Chase version 211. It's that old Kenner troop transport with some biker scouts chasing it and a TIE fighter shooting at the top of it. I don't know. It's just, it's it's Star Wars action. It's it's somebody playing with their action figures. It's what people said all the time. Book Boba Fett. It's just, it's just them playing with their action figures. But it's, I think we said that during Book of Boba and what's wrong with that because it's awesome. Yeah, no, that that's a hot one. Like that, I feel like, is the packaging for some toy that I just want to buy. Throw the toy away and keep the box because the box is so awesome. And it's great because on the page next to this, I don't know if you remember, there's the, the Heat Shaft Destruction version 186. And if you read uh, the comments from Christian Alsman, uh, it's the good stuff. He says, I wondered if ILM would go this far, a 20 megaton blast. Clearing the clouds away, tricks I learned from Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So, bringing that indie magic into uh, Mandalorian concepts. We salute you, Christian Halsman. You're, you're speaking our language there. But I think I am going to pick, on page 117, Navarro School version 100 by Christian Halsman. It's Star Wars School. Come on, I got to pick a Star Wars school picture. And it's it's a beautiful little picture of little children learning from a protocol droid. That's the thing with these Mandalorian episodes. They're so chock full of nuts. Right. We've got to move on. We've got to move on because we have got the Jedi coming up. And whenever we start talking about this episode, like three hours goes by and we don't know what happened. Well, and there's been... I think there may have been one or two earlier, but this section obviously is jam-packed full of wonderful little Dave Filoni marker on yellow lined paper sketches that were such a treat, the few we got in um, season one book. And right here on the first page, there's one of uh, Mandalorian walking through the burned out forest in Corvus. I just, I love, yeah, these little Dave Filoni sketch marker drawings yeah on yellow lined paper 
And I love Filoni's quote, too, in the intro, where he's talking about something him and Doug Chang talk about all the time. You know, just just people just hanging out, chit-chatting. But he says, they talk about, you don't have to do Star Wars things to make it feel like Star Wars. Star Wars really can be anything if you catch it the right way and add the right things to it. And it's it's like a Yoda kind of thing where you're just like, oh, yeah. And he's talking about it in relation to the fact that it's kind of the first time that Star Wars has really, 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 really embraced the, the Kurosawa samurai thing. There's Kurosawa influences all over so much of Star Wars, as we all know, and has been heavily documented, but not quite as blatantly as the Jedi. And it's something that's been going through, I think, especially like The Mandalorian and in Book of Boba Fett of Star Wars really playing with those samurai and Western influences. Yeah, because even so far as when they're talking about coming up with the live action design for Ahsoka's costume of basically designing it to just be a costume out of a Kurosawa film and just adding a little bit of sci-fi to it to make it a Star Wars thing, as opposed to designing a, you know, a space ninja. And it's funny because I think seeing the costume in the show, it just felt like a cool Star Wars costume to me. And it really wasn't until reading this that it kind of sunk in and then looking at the concept too, of just kind of how straightforward it is and isn't really overly sci-fi, but it works. Well, and it, it worked for the character too. Like, of Ahsoka Tano, there was just something about that. It was just like, oh yeah, that feels right. That feels, it didn't, it wasn't like Ahsoka suddenly showed up and it was like, oh my God, what is she wearing? What is this? That's not Ahsoka. It was just like, yeah, okay. Makes sense. Going back to the beginning of like story first and characters first. And I know before we get into the art though, we got to talk about this one little Dave Filoni quote that when I first got the book and read it, I just about spit out my coffee where Dave Filoni's talking about, I had a talk with George at one point about the child, and his main concern was that the kid had to have a proper amount of training. Which there's a lot going, there's a loaded quote. You, you think that, you know, Filoni, in what is this, probably 2019 or something, probably, is still talking to George about the child. And crazy man Lucas... Or, Who's going to train this this little Jedi baby? It's like, oh, no. Here we go. But then also, you know, in the classic George Lucas kind of way, it's just like, okay, well, we will address that. But maybe not in the way, you know, that people expect like a training montage from all these things of, you know, like Rocky Four of him hauling. Polly and Adrian in a sled across the snow. And okay, I guess now you're ready to go fight Drago. Well, and I like the thing you were saying about this too, where this episode really is the two characters that are most important and that the writer producers are most protective of that. It's Ahsoka who is Dave's baby and Grogu who's literally Favreau's baby. And this is the episode where they meet Right, yeah, because they talk about that, that it's it's something else, too, that I didn't think about. Yeah, that it was the working relationship, friendship of 
Filoni and Favreau in full effect in this episode and like the back and forth of Grogu's backstory and how Ahsoka fits into all this. And well, and it's just a neat thing to see that kind of the behind the scenes story kind of mirrors some of the on screen story with these two worlds kind of crossing over and ultimately the collaboration between the characters kind of mirrors the collaboration between these two creators behind the scenes as well. Yeah, there's so much in this episode. There's so much in the art of this episode. There's the incredible landscape, which I like them talking about how the landscape of the planet was kind of inspired by Dave Filoni and his experience with, with California wildfires in real life. And there's the weird creatures going on in the back. There's all the stuff with the magistrate and this, the weird security droid things. And I don't know. There's just, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous episode. This episode's like a dream. It's like something out of a dream. This one is so hard to pick a favorite from just because there's just, everyone is just working overtime on this episode. There's so much of the exploration of Ahsoka's look. There's just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous illustrations. Well, and then there's stuff like on 162, Ahsoka and Grogu touching heads in super rough Dave Filoni sketch. Or below that, them about to hold hands, Grogu and Ahsoka meet. Well, and it's it's funny you mentioned the one of them touching heads because that is what I was going to pick for my personal favorite. Oh. If they put that on a t-shirt, remember how they did like the Ahsoka versus Vader t-shirt? I think her universe sold it years back. If they did that on a t-shirt of Ahsoka and Grogu touching heads, I'm 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 on that. I'm all about that. That is that's my pick. I am gonna go for something a little different, uh, but different in a lot of ways. Actually, is on page one forty. Really, both the pictures on that page, but more so the top one, Fog Duel version two eighty four uh, by Brian Mateus. It's just a cool abstract image of that really is something you would only get out of star Wars where you're seeing just the lightsabers deflecting laser bolts in a dark foggy environment. It's like, that's right out of George Lucas experimental filmmaking style of star Wars, where it's just lights and colors and flashes and blurs. Do you understand him? In a way, Grogu and I can feel each other's thoughts. Grogu? Yes. That's his name. Well, let's move on to the tragedy. Tragedy! Again, I think they're talking about in the intro that it, it's a another fairly straightforward episode, and it was kind of an an easy one for the art department because so much of it was done on location. But then also it was like as easy as it was for the art department. It also brings in the insane dark troopers and we have full on Boba action and Boba's putting the suit on again in this episode. And I like in the intro too, with John Favreau talking about the Iron Man comparison with Boba Fett Yeah, and I think it's one of those things when I finally kind of 
made that connection and it dawned on me. And I don't remember if that was in season one or season two that it was kind of like, I felt dumb because I'm like, oh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Favreau did the first Iron Man. He obviously was really into Iron Man and Mandalorian. And then with the Dark Troopers, it's even more so with the rocket feet. And I think this one, too, the the tragedy of all the other episodes that are covered in this book, it probably has the least amount of art. Well, this chapter has a great one, too, where we haven't really talked um, about any of the the sketches that are kind of collaborations between the concept team and the costume department. And on 175 is a great one. That's a collaboration between Brian Mateus and Shauna Triptych of what we really, really wanted to see out of season two, which is what happened to Fennec's guts. And because the episode went there and we're like, yes, we're going to show her robot guts. They had to take a concept and design robot guts. And they're there on 175. We were so close to the mods and we didn't even know it yet. I know. I don't know, though. If I had to pick a favorite, it's like I I always like the, the one that was in the end credits of the screaming Grogu being carried up away f- with the Dark Trooper. I like just the, the couple Boba Fett in the suit illustrations we have. But I think I got to go with Ryan Church on page 184, main deck aft version Boba inside the Slave One and just the insanity of what is going on inside the Slave One. There's so much happening. It reminds me of like Jeff Darrow's illustrations for like the inside of like the Nebuchadnezzar and the Matrix and stuff of just stuff everywhere and just spaceship action everywhere. And then just Boba Fett standing in the middle of it. It's just what was going on when he was illustrating this just pure insanity i love it well in the end that's something worth mentioning too that this episode you know kind of was straightforward and there wasn't a lot for them to design other than figuring out the inside of the slave one which had never been really seen before and the fact that they kind of worked it all out and we got the coolness that is them you know sitting in those little chairs while the ships you know transforming around them and rotating and yeah, just the concepts for that are just are pretty incredible. I think I am going to go with, on page 182, the Fire Spray Arrival version 256 by Ryan Church, which is just Boba's ship. Kind of has nothing to do with the episode, really. This must be a real early one. Well, let's move on from there to the incredible The Believer. Rick Famuyiwa is back. They're talking about in the little introduction that this episode is really leaps and bounds with stagecraft. I remember, I think, wasn't it in the Disney gallery that they originally they were talking about, oh, we're going to film this one in like jungles in Hawaii. And then when COVID stuff started kind of going into gear, the the volume kind of really took over with this one and technologically just wild episode. And I think, you know, again, a running theme when we talk about going back and looking at these episodes from a more visual artistic perspective. This episode is so crazy because you're so involved in the characters and the words coming out of the characters' mouths in this episode and the themes of this episode. I mean, we did the whole the Rick Famuyiwa trilogy episode of Blast Points where we we talked about that. That you, You really kind of take for granted the design 
of it. But I think that's the point. I think that's what they want us to do. You know, they don't want us to be thinking about the colors and the design. They want us to be listening to the words and paying attention to the characters and their motivations. But there's a lot of cool stuff in this episode. There's TIE fighters. There's weird aliens all over the place. There's more Imperial stuff. There's a new Imperial space truck based on the turbo tank from Revenge of the Sith which is just a really cool design that we get to see some of the 3D model of, or at least a a kind of a 3D concept of it. I love the early concept of the truck pilot, where it's the Rogue One tank commander, but it's almost like the Revenge of the Sith clone pilot color scheme with the white armor on the gray flight suit. I love that Christian Altman was messing around with the the pirate aliens possibly coming up riding giant legged lizard things. That made me a little sad because it, it sounded like the, everyone was on board for that and it just ended up being too expensive. But I don't know. That would have been a very different scene with people jumping off of running lizards. So maybe maybe it was for the best. If I got to pick something, though, from this one, it was one of my favorites. It's in the end credits. It's on page 203. It is yet another Brian Mateus. Brian Mateus is a superstar, if you haven't figured that out already. Truck Battle version 332. I just love this one. I remember seeing it in the end credits and just being like, yes. There's a couple cool ones of the Juggernaut truck, but I think I'm going to go with on page 196. Juggernaut version 235 at the top by Christian Alsman where it's just some stormtroopers in that beautiful giant monster truck driving through the jungle. So, so, so cool. Hey, I'm just a realist. I'm a survivor, just like you. Let's get one thing straight. You and I are nothing alike. I don't know, seems to me like your rules start to change when you get desperate. I mean, look at you. You said you couldn't take your helmet off and now you got a stormtrooper one on, so what's the rule? Is it that you can't take off your Mando helmet or you can't show your face? Because there is a difference. Look, I'm just saying. We're all the same. Everybody's got their lines they don't cross until things get messy. Well, and I think that brings us to the final episode, the legendary, the rescue. I love the intro. They're talking about the behind the scenes debates. I love that Favreau and Filoni had the same debates that any of us would have with like, well, why didn't Ahsoka just take Grogu? Well, Ahsoka can't take Grogu. That's not her story. It leads to Luke. Does it lead to Luke? What does that mean? Of course it leads to Luke. Well, and I love the fact that, that Dave Floney is saying too, that like taking care of the child isn't her destiny. That's not what I've been planning for her to do. Like some humanity and stubbornness of he's been thinking of this all these years. He's like, don't make me change what I've been thinking about. He's got plans. That's the thing. We start talking about the Jedi and Ahsoka and Luke and possession and the ghost of Anakin hanging over that whole episode. We're going to be here. This is already a long episode. And we're going to, we, we don't have time for that. We've got to move on. The rescue. There's a lot of great, great, great stuff in the art of this episode. Aside from all the incredible Plo Koon art at the end. <laughs> Well, before we get in here, there's a great quote, which I think goes well with the whole season on on this, um, from Doug Chang about how 
especially in season two, that we're merging some prequel era design with the original trilogy. It's bringing the whole universe cohesively together. And that's probably the best description, I think, of Mando season two, because there is original trilogy stuff, prequel style stuff, and sequel trilogy style Star Wars all mixed together in a way that just feels like that's what the universe is like. And of course, all that stuff goes together. When it's like they were talking about in the, in the intro that it's what we're, what we saw in Mando season two is really the culmination of all their efforts of everything they've learned from all these years. And I think that's, you know, the, the, the thing that the, the star Wars aesthetic, what is the star Wars aesthetic? And it's, it's almost an impossible thing to nail down because it is like everything that they're talking about. It's the cultural influences, the historical influences, the, all the work from all the amazing artists from all the different eras of star Wars, all just still moving forward in this crazy thing. And it's, yeah, it's all right here in the rescue, honestly. Well, and that's a good point that we're even bringing in Amy Beth Christensen, who did most of her work on Clone Wars, Rebels, Resistance, the, f- the animated universe, and we're kind of building off of some of her work back, even with the siege, with the smaller Imperial cruisers that came from Rebels, and kind of you know building a version of that into a more realistic ship for Mandalorian, and then now having her help out with some of the di- designs for the interior of that ship in the rescue. Well, I love the spotlighting the look of this episode in general, that most of it does take place on that, uh, the, the, the Imperial ship. And it is such a kind of gray-toned episode once we get on there. and It's another one, like we were saying, that there's so much going on in this episode that you don't really pay attention to the colors and the, the, the artistic choices being made, but just... If I have to pick a favorite piece of art from the rescue from the, the Art of Mandalorian season two, it is it's a Christian Allsman one. Page two thirty eight, breach version three hundred and eleven. This is one that actually doesn't look like Plo Koon. It actually kind of looks like Luke, and I love the idea of Luke parking his X wing on the outside of the ship. And using his lightsaber Qui-Gon style to just cut a hole in the ship and come on in. It's like it's it's very Anakin. It's it's like something Anakin would have done in in Clone Wars. Doesn't have time for doors. Well, and also the right below that is another Christian Alsman with the dark troopers looking up as the the circle of Luke's saber comes in. And we haven't ridden it yet, but I'm pretty sure that something very similar to that happens in Rise of the Resistance with his nephew, Kylo Ren, where he's got his lightsaber coming through like a circle in the ceiling. I can't get enough on the on the corresponding page two of the Plo Kloon wearing Luke's clothes like he slept over and didn't have any clothes. And Luke's like, I got 10 of these. It's all I wear. You can borrow one. Oh, just going all in with the Plo Koon. Just incredible. But yeah, I am going to pick on page 222. Towards Hangar version 246 by Ryan Church, which is just a TIE fighter looking giant, which they usually don't, and three little silhouettes running below it. It's just a really cool shot. Wrapping it all up, going back to the the forward by Doug Chang, 
There's a great quote in here that it, I've been thinking about it all week long, getting ready to do this episode, where he's saying, John Favreau continues to challenge us to take risks and bend the rules, breaking them when needed. When confronted with something new, it's tempting to play it safe, to repeat what has been done before. We resisted that urge and pushed the design needle forward. After all, Star Wars design is not about copying what we've seen before. And that's such an interesting quote to put in here and for for Doug Chang to say because so much of the talk surrounding The Mandalorian Season 2 was, again, that horrible fan service thing and just setting up characters for different shows, blah, 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 blah. And it's an easy way, I think, to look at it. But also, like we said in the beginning, it's that George Lucas thing of kind of giving you what you know, but putting it in a completely different setting. And it's like we were talking about when they did bring in Ahsoka into this and introducing us to Ahsoka in a different way and even bringing in Boba and exploring that further with the book of Boba Fett. And they'll do the same thing with the upcoming Ahsoka show. You you think you know Boba Fett and you think you know what this show is going to be. And of course, it's something completely different. It's familiar, but it's different. And I think of that and I think back to like what Ralph McQuarrie started back in the 70s with working with George Lucas. And of course, it comes from, like we said in the beginning of the episode, once again, that the look and the aesthetic of Star Wars comes from all these other influences. Of course, it does. But it's done in a different way, in a way you don't expect. I think, if anything, this this book is reminding us that yeah, Doug Chang is design Yoda, and it, it's it's like it's all goes back to his introduction at the beginning of the book too, because it's the same sort of thing of the it's all about the choices, and that's what where you show your talent, and it's how you're combining these influences that makes it feel Star Wars. And it's not just because you're taking cowboy stuff and you're taking samurai stuff. It's what you take from those influences and how you recombine them that makes it feel fresh and familiar at the same time. And that that is really their that's their secret that they figured out finally after all these years of, of how to make this stuff that feels so Star Wars but feels completely new at the same time. designing films for over 35 years. Ralph had set the bar over 40 years ago, and we've been trying to meet it ever since. And I never take what I do for granted. I feel really lucky that I get to do this every day, and I still treat every day as if it's my first day on the job. Little has changed in my work habits. Uh, My days are still long. I wake up at 5, and I get in the office by 6.30. And I feel very thankful that I can still learn something at my age. I'm 57 now. And it's, challenge, it's a very challenging job, but it's also one that's really fulfilling. George's lesson from over 24 years ago still resonate with me. Working with George was an, truly an unforgettable experience, and I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to help him realize his vision. Ah, 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 ah. 
It's the new Star Wars Land of the Jawas that you put together. Action figures sold separately. You can move the action lever and make the Jawa capture R2-D2. R2? Are you all right? What are they doing to you? You can raise the elevator and make R2-D2 disappear into the sand crawler. Hang on, R2. I'm right behind you. Me too. <laughs> Kenner's new Star Wars Land of the Jawas. Action figures each sold separately. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. Guess what? Apple Podcast Reviews. When you get done listening to this episode, we would love it if you go over there and write a little something nice about Blast Points. Not only does it help more people find the show when they're looking up Star Wars podcasts, but it brings warm feelings to our hearts when we read those reviews. We really do love it. And make sure you check out our website, blastpointspodcast.com. And you are following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you are on Facebook, you need to be in our Super Chill group. And if you want to support the show in a different way, we got the Blast Points Army on Patreon, where we had our Q&A episode not too long ago. There's all of our Book of Boba Fett review episodes, all of our Mandalorian episode review episodes on there, and... As we get closer to celebration next month, there is going to be a lot of celebration action happening over there on the Patreon first for people. Well, and don't forget, too, if you're curious what the Blast Points Patreon is all about, most of our episodes from 2019 are free for anyone on uh, Patreon. So if you want to check out what it's about, those are there for you to listen to. And we are going to have a lot more to talk about regarding Star Wars Celebration coming up next month. So everybody stay tuned for that as we have a lot of plans and a lot of things we're going to be talking about. The whole month of May on Blast Points is going to be dedicated to Celebration. And there is stuff that we cannot wait to tell you all about with the Blast Points Celebration 2022 Experience. It is going to be exhausting, and I hope everyone has comfortable shoes. Or extra feet. <laughs> or maybe a corn peg leg that you can put on. That might that might help. But yeah, again, huge round of applause to everyone in the Lucasfilm art department and to the great Phil Shostak for putting together another incredible book, The Art of Mandalorian Season 2. Just so good. Yeah, it's really one of the high points of the year when these books come out and maybe one of the best things since Disney Star Wars has been I think we've gotten an art of almost every year so it's the best time of the year well that about wraps up episode number 306 the art of the art of Mandalorian season 2 attack of the clones year returns next week who demand yo demand could be some of that going on next week I don't know what does that mean where does that trail go? All you, we know is it's going to be AOTC. 
and that's all we need to know and that's all you need to know so that's coming next week look forward to that but until then everyone thank you for listening so much we'll talk to you then bye bye may the force be with you goodbye old friend may the force be with you Freetown. May the force be with all of you.